Happy New Year, Darksiders. I hope you've had a lovely holiday season. Over this period, I've been doing a lot of research to bring stories to your ears. And, well, I've come across so many that I just think you need to hear. As you know, I like to cover stories that change laws or law enforcement or some form of positive outcome was born of a terrible tragedy. And this will always be my focus. But, going forward, I'm also going to include stories relating to first, last and landmark convictions, as well as stories that might not quite fit into the above categories, but they are stories that need to be told, that need to be heard. I hope you'll stick with me for the ride. As always, it'll be a bumpy one. So with that said, today's story contains some very strong and graphic material. I can't stress enough that it is not for little ears. So please... Listener discretion is highly advised. Now, on to the show. Today's story takes us to the city of Bradford in West Yorkshire in the north of England. A city that came into prominence during the boom of the Industrial Revolution and the beautiful Victorian architecture that still adorns the city is a testimony to this opulent period. A city that, like many other cities, that boomed to distinction during that period, sadly saw much economic decline in the latter part of the 20th century. It was Saturday, May 11, 1985. Martin Fletcher, 12, and his younger brother Andrew, 11, along with their dad, uncle and grandfather, were in the stands at Bradford Stadium, watching their favourite football team, Bradford City, play Lincoln City. But this was no ordinary match. It was a momentous day for both the team and the ardent fans whom had waited for the better part of half a century for this very day. For at the end of this match, whether Bradford won or not, the team were being promoted to the second division the second-best division in English football, or soccer for our American friends. Just before half-time, Martin decided he would beat the rush and head to the food stands to get a Coke. As he made his way back, Coke in hand, he spotted two very pretty girls that had been sat in the row in front of him. Being a gentleman, he stood to one side to let them pass, and they smiled at him and his cheeks reddened with the gesture. And this is the last moment of normality that Martin would ever remember. The very last time that his life as he knew it would be normal. For what was already unfurling in the stand in front of him was going to be the worst disaster in English football history up to that point a disaster that would take the lives of 56 people and leave hundreds of people injured and families devastated, a country bereft and a demand for a change in the law. This is Darkseid and I am your host, Suze. So what happened on that fateful day? 
Why was there such a devastating loss of life? And what happened to 12-year-old Martin and the rest of the Fletcher family? <sighs> well, we need to go back to the beginning for this one. It was Saturday morning, and the Fletcher boys had waved goodbye to their mum, Susan, and set off from their home in Nottingham to drive the 80 miles, or 128 kilometres, to Bradford. In the car was John Fletcher, aged 34, and his two sons, Martin and Andrew. All three were mad football fans. The two boys loved their local team, Nottingham Forest, a team that was in the first division, the top league of football. However, John had grown up in Bradford and was a huge Bradford City supporter. He had moved his family to Nottingham only a year before due to his work. The two boys had initially been very reluctant fans to Bradford City. They always seemed to be in the bottom division and their match highlights were seldom played on Match of the Day, the only true football TV show at the time. But their adoration for their father and his infectious enthusiasm for Bradford City had soon permeated the boys and they came to revere the floundering bottom division team just as much as their dad. They first made their way to John's parents' house in Pudsey, a suburb of Leeds, where they ate fish and chips. John's brother, Peter, 32, joined them. And after they ate, John, Peter, their father, Eddie, 63, and the two boys piled into Peter's car and they set off for what was to be one of the most memorable days of their lives. It was a day of exhilaration for all the fans that had waited all these years to see their beloved team be promoted. As the family arrived at the stadium, they saw great swathes of people, record numbers for this momentous match. John turned to his family and told them that should they get separated for any reason, that they should meet back at the car after the match. As they entered the stadium, Martin asked his uncle Peter if he could have his ticket to keep as a souvenir. His uncle said that he'd hold on to it for safekeeping in case they needed it later. But he promised that Martin could have all five tickets after the game. And this made Martin very happy. The family made their way to their seats in stand G, row O, which was three rows from the back of the stand, in the top left-hand corner. A brass band was marching around the pitch, playing triumphant music and the league trophy presentation came five minutes before the match. And as Peter Jackson, captain of the Bradford team, held that trophy aloft, the stadium erupted in a cacophony of cheers and whistles as people stood and saluted their beloved team. Martin and Andrew were sat beside each other, and the two soon spotted two very pretty girls in the row in front of them. The two boys were soon nudging and winking at each other and they were keen to get the girls' attention. The match was soon underway and the tension in the stands was palpable and joyous as fans watched their team thrash Lincoln City. Just before half-time, Martin decided he wanted to get a coke before the mad rush. He worked his way out of the block, through the corridor 
and over to the food stands and acquired his drink. Walking back up the corridor towards Block G, he noticed the two pretty girls that had been sat on the row in front of him, and they were walking towards him. The corridor was narrow, so being a young gentleman, he stood to one side to let them pass, and they smiled at him, and his cheeks reddened with the gesture. As Martin entered the stand, he looked up at the pitch to see the game was still in full swing, and he noticed the clock on the far stand. It was 3.40pm. He turned the corner to walk up the tiers to get to his family, and as he did, he looked up and saw something that shocked him. A spiral of smoke coming through the boards at the front of the stand. Initially, Martin was shocked and scared, but the fans around him were making light of it. There were calls for people to urinate on the smoke. So Martin relaxed and made his way to the back of the stand to his family. As the plume of smoke grew, people became baffled. No alarm was being raised, uh, no one seemed to be panicking. But there was a sense of unease growing in the crowd. Martin then spotted the police at the front of the stand. Now the police have gone over there to try and quell uh, the fire and they're frantically getting some of the supporters out. They were directing the first nine rows to move into the corridor. As Martin and his family watched the slow-moving train of people making their way into the corridor, the very corridor that Martin had just walked through, they could but wait. The police queue was clear. Yes, there was a problem, but it was manageable. Any attempt to move forward would simply congest the area at the front of the stand. So the police were now directing people to move to the back of the stand, to where they were. Not that this alarmed anybody unduly at this point. Nobody really expected to have to leave the stand. John assured Martin and Andrew that they would probably be moved into the rear corridor for a little while until the fire had been put out. Still, there was no great sense of urgency and the match was still going ahead on the pitch in front of them. The police started to direct those at the back of the stand to the rear corridor. The Fletchers slowly moved along with the crowd and it was at this point that Martin looked back and he saw the smoke had now turned into flames that were growing in intensity and getting closer to them. Bloody hell! Language! His dad chided and clipped him around the ear. Desperately, Martin turned to his uncle. Uncle Peter, what is that? His uncle turned and his gaze followed the direction of Martin's pointed finger. John, get kids out of here now! John turned to Martin and told him to take Andrew and head towards a vacated section of the stand. He and Peter needed to help their father, and Andrew and Martin would be much quicker. But Andrew refused, so Martin was instructed to go ahead alone. But he didn't want to leave his family either. He was scared. But his father encouraged him, and so he did as he was told. And it was this decision that would go on to have devastating consequences for the Fletcher family. Martin jumped onto a now empty row of wooden seats and ran to the end, past everyone who was filing out. He turned back to look at his father hesitantly 
and he met his father's gaze, and he secretly hoped that he would be told to wait. But his father said, Go on, Martin, we're following. So Martin jumped from row to row, then sneaked through the congestion, around the stairwell and into the rear corridor, losing sight of his family and coming face to face with a wall of silent, stationary people. As more people entered the corridor from behind, the congestion and pressure from the throng compressed the crowd closer and closer. It was tight. It was claustrophobic. And Martin couldn't understand why the people weren't moving. Soon, the whole of the rear section of Block G would be in the corridor. Those at the front waiting for the fire to go out so they could return to their seats and those at the back, crushing ever forward as the flames grew closer. They were all trapped. Martin began to panic. All he could see was a wall of people all around him, and an ever-pushing pressure from the gathering crowd behind him. Dad! Dad! I'm here, Martin. It's okay. Calm down. Came his father's familiar voice from behind. Martin stood on his tiptoes and he could just about make out his father's head. He felt a wave of relief come over him. He wanted to move back through the crowds to get to them, but his father insisted he stay where he was. Calm down, everything's going to be okay as long as we all stay calm and don't panic, okay? You can do that for me, can't you, lad? As he turned back to respond to his father, his words trailed off. As he saw... The first narrow channels of white smoke filter in through the roof of the corridor. Quickly, the smoke began to billow into the narrow space. A murmur of fear rippled through the crowd and Martin began to panic. Deep breaths, son, deep breaths. With me, with me. In and out. In and out. That's good. As Martin followed his dad's instruction and regulated his breathing, abating his panic. His father said, Now listen to me, Martin. I need you to be brave. Everything is going to be okay. It's a promise, son. And it was a promise. Martin knew his dad had never lied to him. He was the man who had always made everything okay, all of his life. Until then. Despite the ever-looming black intensity that was growing in mass and slowly bearing down on all trapped in the corridor, the people were eerily silent. No one was panicking. Only Martin and John's shouts to one another had permeated the quiet in the tunnel. Finally, the crowd started to move forward. People began to break into a run, desperate to get out of the smoke-filled corridor. Martin had wanted to hold back to reunite with his family, but he was propelled forward with the tidal force of the surging crowd. He could see the crowd up ahead, heading for the gates at the turnstiles at the end of the corridor. As Martin was surged forward, a bone-chilling voice rang out into the smoke-laden tunnel. The gates are locked! The gates are locked! People began pummeling the doors in a desperate attempt to force them open. Still trapped inside the corridor, people began to panic. But Martin followed his father's advice. Slowly breathing in, 
and slowly breathing out, trying to control his panic. With the gates locked, there was no way forward, and with the fire raging behind them, there was no way back. Then, in an instant, the heavy, acrid blackness above them fell. The light at the end of the corridor was eclipsed, and with the choking, bitter gloom now engulfing them, an eerie silence fell over the corridor. No one moved. No one made a sound. Martin's instinct was to drop to the ground. He began to think of his mum, waving him off that morning, and he wanted nothing more than to be back at home with her and his brother and his father, safe. He realised that since the blackness had fallen, he had been holding his breath. His lungs began to ache with the need for air, and he could feel his heartbeat reverberating in his head. Disoriented, not knowing what to do, Martin felt as though he had no choice but to succumb to the blackness. Just as he was about to fall to the ground and give way, Martin saw a brightly illuminated figure ahead of him in the corridor. This jolted him out of his reverie and he knew he had to follow that figure. He inched his way through the corridor, his hands feeling the way for him, past people still standing and waiting. And then he heard a voice call into the corridor. Get everyone on the pitch now! As though in a murmuration, the crowd began simultaneously moving towards the origin of the voice. There was no panicking, no shouting or pushing. Just a mass consensus to all move towards the voice. As he inched his way out of the tunnel, he knew the F-block stairwell should be right in front of him. But he couldn't see it. He couldn't even see his hand in front of his face. The blackness was all-encompassing. Peering into the darkness, turning and looking in all directions, he spotted a pinprick of light, and he knew, just from the familiarity of his knowledge of the stadium, that it was E-block stairwell. In the darkness, he inched his way over to that stairwell. As he entered the stairwell, he could see light ahead, and, oh, thank goodness, the pitch but it was veiled in an orange glowing light and the heat from this light was blistering against his skin. He dare not go forward and he dare not go back. He started to shout for help. Help! Help! The black smoke filling his aching lungs and he coughed and choked (laughs) on the acridity. But it was silent. There was no response. Knowing that he had no choice but to move forward into the amber glare, he slipped his hands inside his jacket sleeves, pulled his cap down as far as he could and pressed forward against the darkness, against his own body's desperate needs for him to take another breath of the pungent, foul, scorching smoke against the intense heat threatening to consume him. As he emerged from the stairwell into E-block, all he could see were plumes of smoke all around him, and people were running, pushing forward over the rows and down to the front of the stand to try get onto the pitch. 
he allowed himself to take a breath, hoping for clean air. But instead, his lungs filled once again with the acrid smoke and intense burning heat. He looked around, and all he could see were upturned waterfalls of flames racing up the stand and licking across the roof. Debris from the roof was raining down in an ochre, scorching torrent. The heat was singeing his jacket, burning through to his skin. With no choice but to go forward through the raging inferno, Martin, consumed with fear and adrenaline, took one last breath, and then he pelted forward as fast as his legs could take him, down the block, jumping over smouldering seats, dodging the flaming debris raining down from the crumbling roof in tawny gushes. The raging fire coming up through the floorboards was melting the toes and heels of his plastic trainers through the material and welding onto his feet. But still he ran over a wall into the lower block plastic seating which was melting into a hot molten river under his feet. Through the murky smoke swirling all around him he saw the pitch. He could see the pitch a verdant luminescence against the angry black torrent engulfing him. He was almost there. He could see it. It was getting closer. He could make it. He pushed himself forward, harder, faster, ignoring the screaming pain in his feet, the storm of the fire ranging around him, willing his feet to move faster, looming out of the smoke like a leviathan. He saw the wall the wall that separated him from the pitch. He knew there was an eight-foot drop at the other side of the wall, but he didn't care. He'd break an arm, a leg, it didn't matter. He had to get out of this inferno. He was almost there. It was just a few yards away. He stretched his hand out in preparation for his vault over the wall. Come on, Martin! Flames licked at his jacket and trousers. Come on, Martin! Searing hot ash and debris was raining down all around him like torrential rain. Hand outstretched, the wall edge almost within his reach. He was almost there. He could feel it. His fingers were stretching as far as they could go, desperate to grab the edge. Come on, Martin! And it was finally there. He'd made it. And then, a pain so intense, so jarring, like a bullet going through his skull. Martin was flying, weightless, pain-free. The horror of the past few minutes moving away from his vision, a sublime feeling took over him. He was floating down a river. It was so sublime. Everything was so calm after the hell he had just endured. He felt at peace as he was pulled along by the soft current. The coolness of the water seeping into his clothes, calming his scorched, sore skin. He was in heaven. He knew it. What the? Pain seared through his body. This wasn't heaven. Jolted to his senses, Martin opened his eyes and looked up to see a man. He was holding Martin's jacket collar and dragging him through the soft, wet grass on the pitch. He wasn't dead. He wasn't dead. 
He was on the pitch. He'd made it. He was alive. The men promptly let go of Martin and ran back to the stand to help other people. Martin lay there, panting, gulping in the slightly fresher air, stretching and fanning his body out over the sweet, wet, cooling grass, and he sent up a silent prayer for the two heroes that had saved him. For now that he was back to his senses, he knew there were two. The one that had just dragged him across the grass, and the one that had picked him up and thrown him over the wall. But as he lay there, sounds started to filter through to his consciousness. Screams, fire raging, shouting, running, roaring, panic. The roar of the fire was growing in intensity, as were the torturous screams of the trapped people. He opened his eyes and looked at the stand towering over him. It was a wall of raging fire and black, billowing smoke. He was so grateful to have made it out. But he needed to go and find his family. They hadn't been too far behind him in the corridor. They should be out by now. He went to get up and instinctively reached for his cap that had come off when he was dragged. But as his fingers touched it, it disintegrated into ash. He looked about him and noticed discarded police helmets strewn on the pitch, which were now smouldering and burning, and as he looked back to the stand, its flames reaching out over the pitch, he knew that he was still in danger. With his head and feet screaming in agony, he forced his inflamed body to get up and move to the other side of the pitch, to safety. People are spilling under the pitch and we can see the flames going up into the air there and people are running around, they're running around beside us, they're running around all around us and people are saying, get onto that pitch. He was now at the other side of the pitch and the intensity of the fire was like a thousand degree conflagration, reddening the faces of all the people seeking safety on that side. People were still running, screaming, begging for help and he joined in with the cacophony and screamed and begged for his dad. But he couldn't find them. He couldn't find any of his family. So he made his way to the centre of the pitch, the best vantage point to see everyone in the crowd, and those still coming out of the stand. As he looked at the remnants of the stand, the black, billowing smoke was belching high into the air. The wind was now carrying the black plumes of red-hot ash and molten debris into the air and towards the other stands. Stands that contained people. Stands that had fencing preventing the crowds getting onto the pitch and to safety. As Martin wandered around the centre of the pitch, searching for his family, a woman spotted him and took him to a policeman. Martin kept insisting that he was okay, just thirsty, but they were insistent that he needed medical help. Martin knew that his feet and his head hurt, but he felt that he was in an almost trance-like state, and the pain had become secondary to his need for a drink. The policeman took him to an area of the pitch where the wounded were being placed. He was told to lie down, and the policeman placed his coat over Martin. He had begun to shiver as the shock wore off. 
he noticed a man beside him, also lying on the ground. And the skin on his face and hands was so melted that they had turned into yellow blobs. The ambulances arrived and started to take the injured to hospital. They wanted to take Martin, but he refused. He had to get back to the car, for that is where the family had agreed to meet up if they got separated. Apologies for interjecting the story at this point, but you have just heard exactly four minutes of fire sounds in the background. That is exactly how long it took a stadium holding 3,000 people to burn to the ground. Back to Martin. Reluctantly, the paramedics agreed, and so they all went to the side of the car. But no one was there. He waited and waited, and still they did not show. The paramedics convinced him that he had to go to hospital and that the police would try to track down his family and let them know where he was. They all assured him that his family would be okay. It was only at the hospital that he learned of the severity of his injuries. A four-inch wide burn across his back, another across the outer ridge of his left ear. The back of his head was seared by the tar that had fallen from the roof and through his cap. It had reset and cooled onto his head, leaving a gaping wound. His hair had been singed away. He had cuts on his hands and face, and burns on his feet where his rubber-soled shoes had melted onto his flesh. Martin repeatedly kept asking about his family, but no one had any answers. He just kept receiving platitudes that his family would be okay. As Martin could remember his grandmother's phone number in Pudsey, the police contacted her, and shortly after, Martin's auntie, uncle and cousin arrived at the hospital, and, with worried expressions on their faces, immediately asked Martin where the family had been sitting and what route they had used to try and exit the stadium. When he told her that they'd been in Block G and had left through the rear corridor to the turnstile gate, her face turned white and she ran from the room. Having not located the rest of the family at the hospital, his aunt had called all the hospitals in the area that were admitting the injured, but no one had admitted or seen the rest of the Fletcher family. Martin himself should have been admitted to hospital with his injuries, but all the hospitals in the area were overwhelmed by the numbers coming in from the disaster, and so Martin was discharged that evening. He still had no idea where the rest of his family were, and he put his aunt's constant stream of tears down to the uncertainty of their whereabouts. His mother, Susan, drove up from Nottingham, and the family convened at John's parents' house to wait for news. The hours kept passing by, and there was still no news. Martin had been put on heavy painkillers due to his injuries, which made him drowsy, so he slept much of the time. But when he did wake up and go downstairs, his family would immediately turn off the radio and the TV. He had no idea why they wouldn't allow him to watch the news. 
he was desperate to see if he could spot a member of his missing family in the footage. Every time the phone rang, everyone would jump. His mother would run to the phone in the hallway and they'd all wait with bated breath in the living room for her to return. But she always returned with a sorrowful look on her face, which they knew indicated there still wasn't any news. By now, Martin had convinced himself that his family must have developed amnesia after inhaling the acrid fumes. He'd heard of this happening before, and that his family were somewhere wandering around Bradford. Even his mother accepted that this could be a possibility, but a call to the police soon dashed that hope, as there had been no reports of any people, let alone an entire family, wandering the city. Where on earth could they be? There had been no reports of anyone dying. Not that he knew of. But then again, his mother had banned him from listening to the news. But surely she would have told him if deaths had been reported. The more time that passed, the more scared Martin became. But he kept remembering his dad's last words. Everything is going to be okay. It's a promise, son. And he knew that his father never broke a promise. Then, 36 long, agonising hours after the disaster, Martin was awoken by the phone ringing. He went downstairs, hoping that this was the news they'd been waiting for, that his family had been found. As he walked into the living room, he saw his mother being hugged by friends and relatives. She turned to see him stood in the doorway and she let out a wail and ran from the room. It was then that Martin knew something was seriously wrong. He was told to go upstairs. As he sat tentatively on the edge of his bed, he listened for any sound, any indication that someone was coming. At last, he heard the soft footfall of his mother on the stairs. He ran from his room to greet her on the landing. Somberly, she led him to a bedroom, sat him down, and told him that she had something to tell him. They were all dead. All of them. They hadn't been able to escape the corridor and had been overcome with the fumes. Martin collapsed into his mother's arms and the two clung to each other and cried harder than they had ever cried before and longer than they ever would again. The days and weeks that followed were a blur. Martin remembers seeing the match programme on a cabinet and although the literature was only a few days old, it clearly belonged to another world, another time, one he couldn't believe had gone forever. His mother had had to go and identify the bodies. But there were no bodies to identify, as the remains were so burned and charred and indistinguishable. Instead, she identified them through an array of jewellery and patches of clothing displayed on a table. And this was then corroborated with dental records. Now that it was confirmed that their family was dead, his mother lifted the news embargo. And this is when Martin discovered that 52 other people had also died in the fire alongside his family. The full horror of the tragedy hit him 
like a punch to his stomach. One day, Susan sat Martin down and she told him that she'd be there for him, but he needed to be strong, for her, for him, and mostly because that is what his dad would have wanted, that he'd always designated Martin as the man of the house when he was away, and that's what he needed to become now. Martin also remembered his father's words to him in the corridor. I need you to be brave. And he vowed to be brave for all of them. And in that moment, Martin said goodbye to his youth, and at the tender age of 12, he became a man. Five days after the disaster, an inquiry was held. It was conducted by Mr Justice Popplewell, and later became known as the Popplewell Inquiry. Many of the victims' families did not have the strength to give evidence at the inquiry. It was too soon after the disaster for them to address their pain publicly. And many of the victims were not in attendance either, as most of them were still in hospital. The inquiry heard evidence from West Yorkshire Police, the fire service, Stafford Higginbotham, the chairman of Bradford City Football Club, the Bradford City Council and from the very few families of the victims whom could face the ordeal. And just five days after it had begun, the Popplewell Inquiry ruled that the incident had been a tragic accident. Because the stand seats did not have risers, meaning the stairs were open-backed, this had led to a large accumulation of rubbish and paper waste in the cavity space underneath. It was found that the club had been warned about the potential fire risk that this posed, and it was deemed that a discarded cigarette, coupled with the high accumulation of highly flammable waste under the stand, and with no active firefighting equipment on the grounds, such as fire extinguishers, all conspired to the cause of the tragic accident. And so, Coroner James Turnbull recommended a death by misadventure, with which the jury agreed. However, what also transpired as part of the inquiry was that the stand had been condemned some time before. But at the inquiry, the club had claimed it did not have the money to replace it, and no money had been forthcoming from the football league either. Because the team were about to move into the second division, new regulations were imposed upon the club to meet fire, health and safety standards that were required of a second division ground. And it was only because of this promotion that money was provided by the Football League to improve the stands. As May 11th was the last game the club would play as part of the third division, the work to improve the stand to second division standards was set to commence on the day that they actually entered the second division, the very next day after the tragedy, the 12th of May. <laughs> Unbelievable. The disaster led to rigid new safety standards in UK stadiums, including the banning of new wooden grandstands. It was also a catalyst for the substantial redevelopment and modernisation of many British football grounds within the following 30 years. The disaster also led to the creation of the Fire Safety and Safety of Places of Sports Act, which legislated that all stadiums across the country, regardless of division, had to have a means of escape in the case of a fire, and a means of fighting a fire 
such as extinguishers. The legislation also required that fire risk assessments must be undertaken on a regular basis. This is the only positive outcome of that terrible, fateful day. The Fletcher family funeral was held on Friday the 24th of May, a day Susan and Martin dreaded. They were informed that they were going to have a police escort, and Martin found this baffling, but soon understood why. As the four hearses made their way through the streets of Leeds, hundreds of cars followed them, and mourners lined the streets along the entire route. As they pulled up at the church, the media began snapping their cameras in a frenzy. Martin began to panic again, but he remembered his father's words on the day of the tragedy. Now listen to me, Martin. I need you to be brave. So summoning all of his courage, he climbed out of the car, placed his arm in his mother's, and with his head held high and his eyes fixed on the coffins, he led his weeping mother into the church. The next morning, the newspapers were ablaze with the headline, Bravest Boy in Britain, for his actions at the funeral. And the depiction was accurate, for Martin, at the tender age of 12, had displayed incredible strength, courage, maturity and fortitude. Not just on the day of the funeral, but since the moment he'd made the decision to follow his father's instruction and go into the corridor ahead of them. Life for Martin and his mother was very hard in the months and years after the disaster. When Martin was well enough to go back to school, with his hair charred and the blisters on his ears still raw, some children made fun of him, often to his face. They would call him Bernard, a pun of burn head. <sighs> Kids can be cruel sometimes. At other times he would sit by himself, flicking through the scrapbooks of photographs and newspaper cuttings that he had made of the disaster. On a geography field trip some six years later, his classmates were woken most nights by the screams of his nightmares. Despite reservations, Martin decided to return to his beloved football. It would have been what his brother and father would have wanted, for him to continue the tradition. To begin with, he found it hard to be in the stands, in the midst of so many people, and he constantly scanned the stadium for any signs of smoke. But gradually his fears allayed, and he started to enjoy the game again. That was until April 15th, 1989, when he attended the FA Cup semi-final between Liverpool and Nottingham Forest, his second favourite team after Bradford City which was still his favourite team despite the disaster. The match was held at Hillsborough Stadium in Sheffield and on this day, the worst disaster in English football history, even worse than the Bradford City Fire disaster, happened. For those of you that aren't aware, the Hillsborough disaster occurred when too many people were let into the stadium at once and were funnelled into one stand. As the crowds poured in, those at the front of the stand became pinned by the fencing, which held them back from entering the pitch. In total, 96 people would be crushed to death, with 766 injured. The Hillsborough disaster 
as I said, supplanted the Bradford City Fire to achieve this title of the worst disaster in English football history. But it wasn't just for the horrific number of deaths, but also because of the 30-year-long battle by the victims' families to find the truth after the police initially blamed the victims for the disaster. Martin was not in the overcrowded stand that day. He was actually in a stand opposite, but he saw the whole horrific event unfold before his eyes. After the match, he hyperventilated, and when he was reunited with his mother, he asked why the fences had not come down after Bradford, and why two catastrophes had been allowed to happen this way, one after the other. And that question, a quarter of a century later, has still never been answered. But on a side note, just two days after the Bradford City disaster, the then Home Secretary, Liam Britton, promised Parliament there is no question of putting up a fence that would create a trap. But yet, the fences were up at Hillsborough some four years after the Bradford fire. Martin has always felt that the one saving grace of that day in Bradford was that there were no fences on the stand. There were fences on the other stands in the stadium, but not on the one that they were in. Had there have been, the casualties would have been catastrophic. Martin and Susan's story is horrific, as are those of every one of the 52 other deaths that occurred on that tragic day. Each and every story is one of brave souls battling against a raging inferno, following the rules and succumbing in the most anguished, agonising way. But there is a reason that Martin's story has stuck out and intrigued me. The reason I chose to cover his particular story out of the 56. Well, several reasons, actually. Not only did Susan and Martin lose three generations of their family that day, the most of any family affected by the fire, but Andrew, at just the age of 11, was the youngest victim of the tragedy. And there is one more reason why his story has intrigued me. As horrific and unprecedented as the disaster was, people just accepted that the fire was a terrible tragedy, born of misfortune and misadventure, as the inquiry ruled. And because this was accepted, those affected by the tragedy just quietly put the pieces of their lives back together and slowly moved on from the terrible disaster. Everybody, except for one little 12-year-old boy and his mother. At the memorial service for the disaster in 1994, at the newly built Valley Parade Stadium in Bradford, of which Susan and Martin attended, Susan turned to her now 21-year-old son, Martin, you're an adult now, so I'm going to tell you. But I'm warning you, lad, you're not going to like what I've got to say. I never believed it were an accident, and I never will. You do know this one Iggin' Bottom's first fire, don't you? Those of you with keen ears will remember the name Higginbotham, for he was one of the people that gave evidence at the Popplewell Inquiry as part of his role as chairman of Bradford City Football Club. 
This revelation sent Martin down a rabbit hole, determined to understand the implications of his mother's words. He spent countless months at the library going through microfiche data all the way back to 1965. He spent hours talking to people who were there, who reported on the day, who was there on the day, who knew Higginbotham. And he looked into the finances and operation of the club. In the end, Martin devoted 15 years of his life to this quest, even quitting his job to focus on it. What he discovered shocked him so much that he felt that he had to reveal his findings. People needed to know what he knew. So he published a book called 56, The Story of the Bradford Fire. The book caused a big stir, so much so that authority figures started to demand a new inquest to be held into the origins of the fire. Martin has always wondered why he was the only one of his family there on that day to survive. He spent years thinking he should have died along with his family. But now, after all his investigating and the call from the authorities to open a new inquest, Martin now knows why he was chosen to survive. So that he could expose the truth. And you'll have to wait until next episode for the second part of this story. The Bradford disaster happened just a few miles from my childhood home, and even though I was young, I remember the day vividly. The roadblocks and backed-up traffic, the sirens wailing in the air for hours, the TVs lighting up the living rooms of every window of every household on every street, and the acrid smoke that hung in the air for days afterwards. I knew I wanted to cover the story, but it wasn't until I started to research it that I began to realise this may not be just a harrowing, tragic accident that robbed 56 people of their lives. This maybe, just maybe, was born of something far more sinister and contrived. Oh, and uh, another thing. Instead of signing off with the usual Dark Side theme tune today, instead, as a tribute to the 56 people that died and to their families, today's episode will go out to Bradford City's official song. Definitely stick around to hear it. It's actually very poignant with regards to today's story. Lastly, I'd just like to thank All Is Well at the Dairy and Courtney N.H., also known as Flounder, for their five-star reviews. You're both so lovely. Thank you. I'd also like to welcome and thank some new countries to the podcast. I just love that my stories are reaching the ears of people in far-off lands. It definitely gives me a warm buzz. So this week, I'd like to thank Australia. G'day, mates, and cheers. And Hong Kong. Ni hao, shi shi. And Ireland. Again, deepest apologies for what I am quite sure is an utter annihilation of the pronunciations, but I just wanted to show my gratitude. If you like today's story, or this podcast, please don't forget to rate and review. You would be making one little podcaster in lockdown, in a snowstorm, very happy.
and come join me on my Facebook group and Instagram. Just look up Dark Side. Come have a chat. So until next time, stay safe, stay alert. Suze, over and out.
Take me home, little